Imagine a tomorrow powered by innovation, bringing the world together through real conversations about world-changing ideas, expert discussions with no boundaries. Coming up... If energy is ever going to be in the headlines, it's what we're seeing now. There's so much energy interdependence in Europe. We're seeing with the war in the Ukraine, the dependence on fuels from Russia. And what we're noticing is that this could all be avoided if we developed our own independent energy supplies. And the best way to do that in a cost-effective way is think about how we can adopt more renewables, but how we can also roll out microgrids in communities so they can be independent as well. This is the Real Conversations podcast by Nokia. Here is Michael Hainsworth. The fourth industrial revolution isn't just taking place on a factory floor, at a port of call, or in the metaverse. It's helping replace our aging electrical infrastructure in major cities and light the way in developing nations that previously had expensive power or no power at all. As the director of the Marshall Impact Accelerator at the London School of Economics, Leslie Labruto sees microgrids as a coming together of several technologies at once, from sustainable energy like wind and solar, AI, and the Internet of Things powered by 5G. We began our discussion by talking about where a microgrid deployment makes sense. Nowadays, microgrid deployments can make sense in many different places. The case study that we looked at as a team was more remote and rural areas, but increasingly anywhere that needs resiliency in their grid, which can now be urban centers, is eligible for microgrid as well. Microgrids take centralized grids and make them decentralized. So where we're typically reliant on large scale power, smaller grids help create a system that could be more easily maintained, more easily monitored, rather than a large-scale system, which we even see in urban centers today. So the answer is really anywhere. That's an interesting point, because one of the big things we're talking about in the Western world is that we haven't poured enough into maintaining and building and expanding our centralized grid in North America and in Europe. So this isn't just for remote areas or developing markets. It's not. And a great example of this that many people will remember was the big blackout and brownout in Texas when they had a freak storm. And that was all because they were relying on a centralized grid. If one part of the grid goes down, it has effects on truly millions of people. Whereas if we took a decentralized approach, you can more quickly spot the source of the problem and restore power more quickly, thus creating more resiliency in that community. So geographically speaking, with all your experience in the world of microgrids, who would you say is doing a microgrid the best? There's a couple different examples that I've had a chance to work on that I've been really impressed by. Two case studies that I wanted to cite today are one, small island developing states, and two, microgrids in remote areas of sub-Saharan Africa. On small island developing states, you have a great case study. You have populations of 10, 20,000 people who are relying on typically imported diesel powered from one main grid. But you have these communities that can really decentralize themselves and rely on renewable power like solar and wind and use smaller systems that are more resilient to storms and other effects that we're seeing on small island developing states. And I've been really impressed to see their uptakes of solar, wind, and geothermal. Given it's a perfect case study, they're importing diesel fuel, which is up to a dollar kilowatt hour, compared to what we can find with a microgrid, which can be as low as 10 cents a kilowatt hour, kind of what you and I pay in in Europe and, and North America. 
And in Sub-Saharan Africa, you have people who are so far away from a main grid, they're never going to be connected because it doesn't make sense for the utility to spend their time connecting a community of, say, 10 or 20 or even 100 people to the main grid when they're drawing down on so little power. So a microgrid is the perfect solution for those communities that just need a small amount of generation to power minimal needs that they're currently drawing down on now. And those have been some great case studies of how we can see solar microgrids powered by batteries as well deployed in remote parts of the world. That's interesting, particularly the, the island nation example that you gave of where you've got countries importing the fuel necessary to keep the lights on. But aside from the the, the fuel that you could use or not have to use, um, you're actually fueling an economy when you don't have to pay a dollar per megawatt. You're paying 10 cents. That's right. You're fueling entire economies based on an imported fuel that's not from the country, that's volatile in costs, as we're seeing, and it just increases energy dependence. And a microgrid is a first step towards taking that motion towards energy independence, harnessing your own local resources powered by solar, which are in abundance on island nations, oftentimes wind and oftentimes geothermal. That's all locally produced kept in an in-house or in-country, and then powers communities just using energy sources found locally on the island. What about um, Europe? Uh, what are we seeing on that front? Even in Europe, we're seeing increasing examples. If energy is ever going to be in the headlines, it's what we're seeing now. There's so much energy interdependence in Europe. We're seeing with the war in the Ukraine, the de- dependence on fuels from Russia, And what we're noticing is that this could all be avoided if we developed our own independent energy supplies. And the best way to do that in a cost-effective way is think about how we can adopt more renewables, but how we can also roll out microgrids in communities so they can be independent as well. So with that in mind, maybe we need to, to talk a little bit about you here, because if I understand correctly, you were inspired by a family member to pour your energy into microgrids. I was. My grandmother was born in the great year of 1916, which is just remarkable to think of what she saw in her lifetime. The invention of the transistor, the invention of the television, man going on the moon, all the way to the invention of the internet. And when I often would talk to her growing up, she would tell me about her first job. And she worked on a conveyor belt at a light bulb making manufacturing facility in New Jersey. She basically was helping create light bulbs. Her entire life she spent working at this facility. And I think about what she would do and every day, day in and day out, she would show up to work to coil tungsten, the little tiny filaments we'd see in light bulbs, which, you know, determine how bright a light bulb can be. And there was a time in America when that was novel and new, just having access to a light bulb. And fast forward to my own career, and I was, you know, I was thinking about what to do with my life, and and I decided to dedicate my life to engineering. And clean energy was the thing I wanted to pour my, my energy into most, no pun intended. And what did I decide to do? I decided to help bring light to places where there were none. Those very same light bulbs that she was manufacturing, I was helped take to places like East and West Africa, India, Pakistan, places of the world where almost a billion people still don't have access to basic electricity. 
So then let's extend this thought on what's novel and new in the evolution of technology. What's the new technology that makes the microgrid possible? You know, I think back to Nanny's time and a grid was a big was a big deal, just having access to power, even in the United States, um, as early as the 1930s when we saw rural electrification. But now we've moved on. We don't need to rely on just big grids that just are cable and wires. We now have capabilities for these grids to be so much smarter than they used to be. Understand how customers are actually using power, when they're using power, how much they're using. When is it going to be most cost effective so everyone's not using energy at the same time? But how do we smooth out load curves to make sure that we're not all relying on power you know, right after work, for example, but we can run our dishwashers at night, in the middle of the night when demand is, is maybe lower in a community and thus cheaper. So that's all called smart controls. So we've moved from you know this big clunky grid to these smarter, intelligent, responsive grids that are powered by digital tools. So when we talk about digital tools, what are some of these digital tools? Because it sounds like there's a, a role for artificial intelligence when we talk about understanding when we're using the, the, the electricity um, for 5G by way of the Internet of Things. You know, the easiest way to break it down is to just think of supply and demand. So we're all demand. We're drawing down power left and right to power our laptops, our refrigerators, when you turn on the lights at home, when you go to work, it's all demand. And then there's supply. This is the coal being burnt, the solar being produced, anything that's coming in from the grid. And traditionally, those don't speak to one another. It's just supply in and it's there. But now with smart technologies and Internet of Things, as you rightly mentioned, there's a chance for these two to talk to one another, for us to really understand how much demand is being needed at a given time in what locations and, and how much is there of a supply. And we can start doing a better job matching these through things like artificial intelligence, things like smart technologies, where they can say, you know, do I really need this right now? Do, do I need to run the laundry right right when I get home? Or can I delay this to a point where the grid can tell me, you know, there's actually excess supply and not much demand. Maybe that's a better time to run my dishwasher or my washing machine or, or power something at home. So these are kind of the examples of smart controls and artificial intelligence that we're seeing this emergence of. And the more they can talk to one another, the more efficient our system becomes and the cheaper it becomes for consumers. What about on the supply side of that equation? What kind of technology are we dealing with there? You know, the steam engine was invented and there was a long time when we thought we could just combust fossil fuels and that was the main the main way of producing power. But now we're seeing such a diversity of supply that I think the world is starting to embrace as cost curves come down. You know, things like we've heard about before, renewables, solar, wind, geothermal, these are essentially free resources that are being generated just by the Earth's natural movements. Now, of course, harnessing them takes power and takes money, and we're seeing those costs reduce. The holy grail, of course, is battery storage. So, you know, people often lament, well, what if, what if the sun's not shining? What if the wind's not blowing? The answer there is how do we store power when it is coming in? into a battery and then release it when, say, the sun isn't shining or the wind's not blowing. There's also a really exciting um, sort of subset of renewable energy called baseload power. And for those that might be overwhelmed by that term, baseload power means it's always on. And that's why people love fossil fuels. You can always burn the coal. You can always, you know, run, um, you know, pour, pour diesel into a generator. It's, it's really can always be there. But baseload solutions like nuclear, 
geothermal, hydro, these can always be running. The, the steam from the earth doesn't stop when you're producing nuclear energy. It, it's not that you don't stop and start. It's just always on. And th that's something utilities love because it's always predictable. You know how much you're going to get. And when it's renewably powered, then we find that there's no carbon emissions, which increasingly countries are trying to set more and more goals around. This seems to be one of those building blocks as part of Industry 4.0, and cons uh, communication service providers are steeped in the fourth industrial revolution. They're helping fuel that. What role do they play in the build-out and management of a microgrid? So what smart tools, and, and you're right, this kind of fourth revolution that, that we're calling it, is playing a role in doing is... You know, we could rely on just supply and demand, but there's this inter is there's this intermediate world called smart controls that we could be harnessing to to better smooth out and match that that load supply and demand. And it's just an opportunity for it to become way more efficient. So we're not wasting power, we're not wasting money, and there's a chance for it all to kind of come together in a way that's much smoother and more efficient. So we don't we don't fall behind on energy efficiency and just wastage. So many times in the winter, the summer, we'll see air conditioners running in the middle of the day when nobody's home. That's a great example of smart technologies to say, hey, everybody left the house. Why is the AC still on? And, you know, the, the, the residents of that house, we can see where they are. They're coming home in 20 minutes. Let's kick that system on. So when they get home, it's as if the air was never off all day, but it was. So there's these examples that we can see of just smart technologies, you know, we we all know where we are at all, all times and our, our phones are, you know, constantly monitoring our geolocation. And sometimes people could say, well, that's creepy. But other times we could say, well, if we can control it for good, then we have an opportunity to actually create a more efficient system from a power supply perspective. Oh, I've got personal experience of that. The moment the wheels are up on the plane, when I leave the city on a business trip, my house knows I'm no longer in my city and it automatically lowers everything in the house, makes sure that the power drain is minimal. And then as soon as I land back in the city and my, my phone reconnects to the network, the house goes, oh, I guess I better turn the air conditioning back on or heat the house again. So those are some interesting end user aspects to that sort of smart technology as well. And Michael, how nice is it when you get your bill at the end of each month to know that you optimized what you were using energy for and you weren't just sinking cash when you went to go pay your bill? It's such a nice feeling. And that's what smart controls can really do is make a happier, healthier and more economically viable homes. So how micro is a microgrid? Well, microgrids can be very tiny. Even a household can consider themselves a microgrid all the way up to, say, about 5,000 households. That's the metric I like to use. Obviously, some people would say you can go a little bit bigger, you can flex a little larger, and some people would say even, even a bit smaller. But that, that's just a good way to think about it. I could probably talk about it in terms of kilowatts and megawatts, but I think using the household dimensions probably even easier than using those kind of numbers, which sometimes don't mean much to many people. Okay, so um, when we talk about that, um, going up to 5,000 households uh, all the way down, uh, what's the carbon footprint of a, of a microgrid? Well, that depends. It depends a lot on what that microgrid is being powered by. Now, microgrids aren't inherently power, in, are not inherently powered by solar or wind or renewables. A microgrid can be powered by fossil fuels. So it really depends on what your input is to power that grid. Again, in Sub-Saharan Africa, there's places where fossil fuels are going to be the least cost solution to powering a microgrid. But longer term, that 
again, goes back to the energy interdependence issue. So we are seeing a move towards microgrids being powered by renewables and thus having a lower carbon footprint. You you brought up the cost component. I I can imagine when we talk about the key challenges in deploying a microgrid, cost would be one of them. But what are some others? Cost is definitely one of them. And another is just regulatory. So imagine you are the CEO of utility. What you need to do is provide reliable power and generate revenue for your business. And then in comes this microgrid company that wants to kind of take away some of your some of your um, some of your supply and some of your revenue. So you see there's an inherent tension there where a utility CEO might say, hey, hold on. I'm not sure I want microgrids popping up in my area. But if you have progressive regulatory policy, you can see that they can actually coexist and still generate revenue. And you're actually increasing competition for consumers to say, hey, wait a second, maybe I don't want to get power from the traditional big utility. I do want renewables powering my home or I do want a more reliable system. And maybe I'll I'll actually be willing to pay a premium so that if there's a big storm, I'll actually know that I have reliable power because the grid that I'm drawing power from smaller and more localized. So increasing competition is not a bad thing, but inherently there are some tensions that emerge, you know, regulatorily or, or politically when we, we see these wanting to, to increase. Now, don't get me wrong. Utilities aren't the, aren't always the bad guy. They understand this and they do want to see an increase in competition because at the end of the day, utilities are stretched. You know, it's stressful to have to always be the one providing all the power. And if they have smaller actors coming in to buttress and reinforce some of their supply, oftentimes they welcome it. And and they are part of a system that also has clean energy goals. And sometimes they want smaller providers to come in and say, we'll do the renewable stuff. So, you know, you can keep doing what you're doing and we can see a nice, healthy mix. Yeah, I don't know of any other industry that asks its consumers to use less of its product, not more. Isn't that funny? It's so true. So if cost and, and I suppose willingness um, and the regulatory component comes into play as a challenge to deploying a microgrid, as soon as you hear regulation and politician, I can imagine we have to add time to a list of the key challenges. I mean, I've been working in this sector for a decade plus, and you'd think things would move so quickly. I love to use the example of island nations. Here you have sometimes populations of 5,000 people. You think, surely if anything can move quickly, it's on a population of 5,000 people. You know, you're not dealing with 340 million people like you are in the United States. Sometimes it's very tiny. But even then, the amount of stakeholders you need to bring together, the Minister of Finance, the Minister of Energy, the CEO of the utility, the new developers coming in, the land studies that need to be done. This is a great example. When I was looking at um, helping develop a a solar project in St. Lucia, the, the most viable plot of land was very near the airport. There was a nice open patch of land where solar, everybody agreed this made a ton of sense. But quickly into the project, about three months in, someone said, wait a second, when airplanes are landing, are they going to see a glare from the solar panels, thus affecting their ability to land? So what did they have to do? They had to spend six months on a glint and glare study just to make sure pilots from every angle when they were landing wouldn't be affected by the glare from the solar panel. And that took six months to do. So to your point, yes, regulation and policy, it's there oftentimes to keep us safe and to make sure that things are done in a way that's responsible and viable. When you're putting anything in the ground, asbestos doesn't get picked up. So it does take time. But I will say after the first project 
gets done, the second, the 15th, the 16th, you do see efficiencies and all of a sudden people start to get more comfortable and that's what really creates a revolution. After this podcast, learn more about this and other insightful topics by going to nokia.com slash real conversations. There you'll find additional information linked to today's podcast. So then what are the first steps to gaining traction on, on a microgrid? So start small and bring together the right people. You know, move fast and break things doesn't exactly work in the energy sector. <laughs> no. You really want to make sure that people feel informed and are and, and feel understood and heard. What does the community want? What is the utility worried about? What is the what is the finance budget that they're able to to apply towards, you know, maybe co- reducing the cost of this. So the sooner we can bring those actors together to voice their concerns and figure out what is the common ground, what is the common vision that we want to see, then you can start making progress. But really, as small as you can go, even on a local level, even in your community, I mean, go to a town hall meeting and have this conversation. It starts with one person and then starting to engage the right people, you can actually see change in a community. You touched on the money component to this. How do you gain financing for a microgrid? So energy, I love talking about energy finance because it it seems like a big black box. But actually, energy is actually quite easy to price. It's pretty predictable. It's not rocket science. I'd say of all the things out there that we've learned how to price energy, we've done a, a pretty good job, pretty good job at. The key here is making sure we're attracting the right kind of financing. In the news, you may have seen this, this, you know, startup solar company went bust. It's like, well, were we using the right kind of money to back that company? Venture capital dollars in Silicon Valley who are looking at software companies going to power, you know, solar, it, it doesn't make sense. You're not going to see the returns on the same time scale. Oftentimes we're just looking at the wrong type of capital to power the right solution. So how do we look at the right type of investors who are looking at similar return profiles for what an energy system can provide? This is why we see infrastructure money. They have longer term horizons and maybe expect less returns, but it's a solid bet. So how do we get more infrastructure investment? And how do we even look at subsidy capital where it doesn't make sense? You know, I mentioned in sub-Saharan Africa, you have communities of 100 people that are just trying to power light bulbs looking at mini grids. Now, these mini grids could cost a million dollars and the payback for a small community just powering light bulbs, sometimes it said the payback was 51 years. You'd say, what investor is going to look at that? And the answer is probably not many. But that's where we have development capital. That's where we have, you know, grant capital and subsidy capital to play a role to say, this is the just thing to do. This, if we want to see economic development in this country, this is where philanthropic grant capital, subsidy capital from governments is meant for to make sure that everyone's on an equal playing field. And those people can then start using other forms of power and economically developing to become a part of society in the 21st century. So this is where we need to make sure there's a wide spectrum of capital out there. How are we using the right type of capital to back the right solution? So where are we in seeing decentralized power as a movement? You know, every year I I make sure that I I brush up to speed on on where we stand on the state of energy supply. And every year I'm encouraged to see more and more, not less and less. 
increasingly with these incredible advancements we're seeing in technology, the costs keep coming down. Batteries become cheaper. Batteries become more efficient. So every time that I check these stats and, and hit the refresh button, there's more and more renewable power out there. Now, we do see some global trends that sometimes make us think, are we taking a step backwards? And sometimes the answer is yes. We never could have predicted a war that would cause energy prices in Europe to be volatile. We never could have predicted that um, you know when a recession hits and we just need to be maybe increasing our amount of fossil fuel development in a, in a country. Is that the best long-term solution? I think the answer is no. But you have these kind of political pressures that sometimes see these blips on the radar. So 2022 is going to definitely be a year where there's a blip. We're going to see you know all sorts of trends kind of looking a bit wonky. But in the long term, when we take a 10-year, 20-year view, we're seeing things go in the right direction. Sounds like you're optimistic. I am optimistic because, you know, they say this thing about wizards and prophets. Um, prophets say we just need to use less power. And wizards say technology is going to save the day and it's a silver bullet. And you know what? I think I'm in the wizard and the prophet camp. I think that we're seeing smart technologies come up in ways that you, know, you just mentioned going to the airport, leaving and your, and your house turns off. That's brilliant. That never would have existed. You know, think back to Nanny's time to think about something as smart as that. And, and in, in some ways, I studied technology. I'm an engineer. And the cost gains I've seen in technology, we're only seeing things get better. So at the end of the day, I am an optimist. I think we are going to see the smarter kind of smarter grid solutions becoming becoming more and more prolific where we can become profits and also wizards seeing greater technology gains um, that inspire me every day. The Real Conversations podcast by Nokia, building a future that's sustainable, productive and inclusive together. Discover how by visiting nokia.com slash no boundaries.